China scraps COVID policy. Japan says it's going to double its budget. And is Taiwan driving off the semiconductor companies that have made it such an important part of the global economy? I'm Christian Whiten. This is uh, Simon and Whiten, joined as always by Mark Simon. Mark, please say hello. Merry Christmas, everybody. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas, Mark. Well, uh, as I mentioned, so China, despite coming out of a party Congress not that long ago in which Xi Jinping and his top cronies said that they were doing COVID zero for the foreseeable future, that this was their superiority to the West, um, thanks to protests, which is sort of interesting that China seems to have flinched a little bit from these first mass protests with significant geographic depth uh, since Tiananmen Square, uh, is scrapping its policies, at least saying it is, and seems to have done so in Beijing. You're having a surge in cases uh, and in health problems because China actually seems to have spent most of its time on tracing and on policing and not on building things like emergency rooms or uh, you know care clinics for people who have these illnesses. Um, you know, and there's also this perception that China's economy is going to come back full blast because of this. Certainly, if you look at some of the trades here, uh, there's an expectation on Wall Street that it's clear sailing ahead more or less. Uh, what do you think, Mark? Is that, does that make a lot of sense? Is that the truth? Let me ask you two questions. First of all, would you take the Chinese vaccine? <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't. Okay. The second thing is, I want to ask you is, what makes us think that the competence or the incompetence that in China that's been handling COVID is all of a sudden going to become competence in the economic field? So I, I, don't, really, I don't really buy into it. And, and the Chinese economy has a lot of headwinds in many other ways. So COVID, just because you come out of COVID, you know, yeah, you get a bounce. There's no doubt about it. People are now moving around, but it doesn't mean the economy is super strong and moving forward. And unlike the U.S., I am a firm believer, I know people disagree, that the Chinese have burned through considerable household savings during this. And I do not think that they are in the mood to basically spend a lot. So consumer spending will be down. The second thing that I'm really expecting more than anything else at this point in time is probably some political backlash for the first time that we've seen under Xi Jinping. Um, I think people have now seen that he is not the all-powerful great emperor and that his mandate from heaven has a few clouds in it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I think he's going to be a little bit more cautious on the security front. And what that means is he'll probably have his ears up. He'll be out hunting for people who are causing problems. That causes considerable slowdown to the economy because people are really not willing to put their head above water. Also, we've seen a death of entrepreneurship in China. I don't care what anybody says. I argue that all day long. Jack Ma is hiding in, uh, hiding in Japan. Uh, Joe Tai, his partner, spends all his time in the U.S., you know, dealing with the nets, not doing a very good job of it. Um, and all these people are leaving. So, for example, one of the things, there was a very good article in the Wall Street Journal or the Bloomberg Interchangeable. Um, <laughs> one, of those, one of those guys wrote a very good article that's true. Basically, the mainland Chinese are moving their offices from Hong Kong and they're moving money overseas. Mike Forsyth of the uh, New York Times, who just did a really good book on McKinsey, Mike's an expert on this. I consider him really very wise on how money moves around, something I follow. Money's leaving China. And when money leaves China, talent leaves China. And this is your entrepreneurial class. So what somebody's saying is, okay, I've got 20 restaurants or I've got three businesses in China. I'm going to milk those for all they can. I'm going to make sure they run well. I'm going to do the best I can. 
but I'm not opening up any other businesses. The other thing too is China really is an entire economy based on two things. First of all, it's based on um, real estate. I don't care anybody says, what is it, yeah. 53 trillion, 72 trillion, depending on who you talk to. Well, that real estate market is slowly dropping. People aren't as wealthy. If you're using real estate as your basis for collateral for almost everything, it's getting harder and harder to find economic financing. The second part of the Chinese economy is it's not built. It's not built on consumers. It's built on export manufacturing, almost mercantilism. And guess what? China is becoming much more expensive. And as it becomes more expensive, basically manufacturing is leaving in terms of new startups and things like that. So yeah, they'll always have some jobs, but quite frankly, I think they're in for a head, big headwinds. Sorry, that was kind of long-winded, but. No, well, that makes a lot of sense. So none of the, the basic problems China was facing before this have, have cured or have been cured. Xi Jinping has not demonstrated a lot of prowess financially or economically. And they're sort of saying, okay, 2023, we're gonna be focused on economic growth. Um, but so far they seem to be more focused on ideology and they have this economic model that's played out the idea. I mean, do you see any, do you, I mean, what I, do you, I mean, you know, the military world better than I do. Do you see any signs of them slowing down in their militarization of Asia and their problem, you know, dropping anything? Doesn't seem to be, uh, you know, you sort of wonder, it's so hard to get accurate information, but um, the Navy that they have continues to grow in capability. They seem to be definitively increasing their nuclear deterrent, which is weird. That sort of sounds like a throwback. Once you have a sufficient deterrent, why bother, you know, going up to us Russia levels of what, 2,500 warheads, yep. uh, really, do you need more than a couple hundred? Um, the flip side of that argument is, well, this gives them a second strike, uh, capability if they, I don't know if we if we if we perform a sneak attack on them, which I would say is probably pretty unlikely that they could ride that out and still retaliate, which in turn perfects deterrence. Anyway, um, no decrease, no talk of any sort of decrease. In, and in that, that costs money. I mean, you know, when they fly 15 bombers at Taiwan, that costs money and that scares the Taiwanese, certainly scares the Japanese and the U.S. gets concerned. So I, I really think the most the only thing I find interesting about covid really is typical communist party. It's like, we're here today, we're here, we're here yesterday, we're here today, and there's no lines in between. So like they're running all these commercials and that's because they control the media. They say so they, they control the media, they think they control the narrative. I believe it's different now. I believe people have enough different communication levels. They have memories. They're trying to use basically the great firewall internally. In other words, what they do at the Great Firewall, people always forget. It's not that they take everything down right away. They just never let anything build up. So if you have like a function on like Lu Jabao, the uh, human rights, well, if people post all the time, we love him. Three days later, it's gone. So there's, there's no depth of knowledge. There's no ability to keep things discussing going on. It's the reason why you bump into mainland Chinese kids at U.S. campuses and all of a sudden they're like... 1989, Tiananmen Square. Wow. Because it went down the memory hole. You know what I'm saying? And uh, it's sort of also, sad that it works so well. You'd think that, oh, does. yeah, so they censor stuff, but word of mouth, people talking, or people who can get around 
um, blockades on the internet, but it sounds for the mass of the people that it actually does work censorship. I mean, I mean, look, I, I've always believed that most places people pay attention to what, you know, the price of rice, as I call it, you know, we just have a bigger stream because our, our things are tied in, in China, in repressive societies, the government, the military, all that control is off to the side. People don't want to deal with it. But I think China's problem is, is and their, their problem abroad, the reason why they're having so much trouble abroad is essentially the great firewall really doesn't work when there's a, you know, what is it? Somebody told me the other day, there's something like 16 million VPNs going into China, you know, from people. And every shop I know has one. You know, office I, I used to deal with, no, they have VPNs or they have direct lines or they carry Hong Kong cell phones, you know what I'm saying? Or, or whatever they, whatever it is they do. I mean, if Musk ever turns on Starlink over China, that'll be, he, he probably won't be, that'll be the first sign that he's no longer a Tesla shareholder. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> That's right, yeah. The but the thing with him is you're dealing with someone, in my mind, you're dealing with someone with the Communist Party. They're trying to memory hold this thing. And I, maybe it'll be, maybe it won't be. I think the thing they do have going for them is they're dealing with Omicron, And essentially they'll probably wipe out a few hundred thousand people over the age of 80 which the net effect of that is some pissed off kids, but also, you know, an overall cost saving, you know, that Freakonomics way of life, you know, in other words, you know, you're taking out a bunch of people in their eighties, the economic damage to the country is not much, you know, that's, it's a harsh way to look at it, but that's actually the facts. You know, I've, I've seen people who can do calculations that say the million people that were lost here. And I'm sure right now a plane will crash into my house to take me for making this point. But the fact is, a lot of people that were taken here were heavy, heavily medical, heavily heavy medical expenses. People are people very, very old. You know, uh, for example, in uh, Pennsylvania, um, there's now a lot of beds and there's a tremendous number of beds in old age homes, you know, because it took them. Mm -hmm. hmm. Switching uh, geography slightly, but still in East Asia, Japan. Um, you know, I heard this for the first time maybe a year or so ago that Japan was thinking of not just its small increase to its defense budget of the kind that we saw during um, Abe, but a significant one, even doubling. It's been an unofficial sort of uh, standard in Japan to spend 1% of GDP on defense. That's a lot less than we do. We're a bit more than 3%, 3.5%, but um, and it's less than even European cheapskates. But since Japan has such a big economy and the world's third largest, that, that produced a pretty big number. But um, they've been talking about going to 2%. That would be effectively doubling what the defense budget traditionally has been. Uh, and now they finally put it into action. It looks like it's really going to happen. I'm curious if you think it, if you agree with that, if you think it's really going to happen. Oh, Second I, of all, I think, how they get a, how are they going to pay for that? I mean, that's a separate question. You know, you know how everybody says you meet, most people in life meet people after they were successful. In other words, like, you know, I was down at the I was down at the uh, I was on the plane and I met Mike Tyson. <laughs> I, I meet all the people who become super successful, but then I never figure it out. I'm going like like I met Barack Obama even before he was a U.S. senator when he was campaigning. I met him when he was a junior U.S. senator. I talked to the guy for like 40 minutes, literally. Huh. He was just dead. He's the junior said he was already a rock star a little bit. You know what I'm saying? But it was an odd it was an odd event that he was at. I talked to the guy for 40 minutes. I liked him a lot. Um, you know, so my point is, that, like, I tend to meet people before they happen. And I met Abe a couple of times. And I've, I've, I've always because when you meet somebody, it's like, whoa, you know, 
Um, they're, they're going to there. Look, the Japanese are incredibly serious about this. Um, they have moved billions of U.S. dollars to the islands. People don't realize it. They have islands that are about 100 miles, 150, 20 miles above to above Taipei. In fact, the last time when Nancy Pelosi came out, the Japanese actually fired missiles over those islands. Hmm. So they are serious about this. Taiwan, they have when I remember I was talking to a friend of mine, a, you know, much smarter than this. And he initially said, he goes, you know, it doesn't really matter. The Japanese can just go all the way around. And I'm going like it matters. Believe me, it matters. You know, that extra four or five days cruise. And then, you know, you've got Guam and all that. And he thought about it. He thought about it. He came back and, you know, he came back and he said, whoa, he said, the Japanese will never let Taiwan go. They will never go without a fight down there. And I think that's what they're recognizing. I think there's two things happening here. I think the first recognition is they can't depend on the Americans. (laughs) That's That's my takeaway. That's my takeaway. They're increasing their military spending because they are not sure what the Americans are going to do. Okay. In particular, this administration. This administration constantly goes over there and says we had talks with our strong allies. Somebody told me if you read the Japanese press and you sit back and that's the press you got to read because that's their press. If you read the Japanese press, it's not so not 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 so. I got a couple of guys that work in the Nikkei group up there, you know what I'm saying? And they said it's not there's not the confidence that there was. They had a lot of confidence in um, Obama. They had a lot of confidence in Trump. They never understood Trump. They just thought Trump was like, you know, he's like. You know, and, you know, they, they would hope he would, but you never knew what he would do. With Biden, they're not so sure. I think they're somewhat reassured these days on that. But I think they know long term there's certain things that they have to do. Also, I think the modernization will be incredibly interesting in terms of the other countries in Asia that will be modified. The Japanese will certainly get into weapons exports and they have tremendous commercial ties into places like Thailand, Indonesia, Taiwan. Um, not as much to Korea, but Malaysia. And so what they're going to start to see is I would not be surprised to see a few things. First of all, I think we'll see um, more Japanese um, inspired, more, I wouldn't say inspired, constructed naval warcraft, fast naval warcraft coming out to, to go in those countries. The Japanese have the, because they own different yards in different countries. So for example, they own shipping yards down in Singapore, around Singapore down there. They can build down there. They can transfer that technology down there and build. Second thing we're going to see is we're going to see drones and we're going to see some fighter aircraft, you know, coming out of Japan. I think the Japanese are going to jump into this full on. I also told somebody the other day, I think China is now going to have a new battle in Washington, D.C., because we're going to see a Japanese industrial complex, military industrial (laughs) complex, that as they start to expand, these companies will become of interest to U.S. companies. We'll see mergers. We'll see some acquisitions. We're going to see a lot of good stuff happening here. And the other thing I'm just going to say, and this is a prediction right now, I have long predicted, I've long believed that the Japanese population crisis is going to lead it to basically start looking for joint command operations with places like the Philippines, maybe Vietnam, other places where essentially we're going to have these combined crews on ships of Filipino crew, Japanese officers, we could have some type of thing with Brunei, we could have all these things. We're going to start seeing them pulling people into their military industrial complex, and we're going to see them. They understand their problem. They know their problem is personnel. 
they understand it better than almost anybody else. They know their problem. So they're going to start doing that. I think we're going to see a lot of different things happen with them in the term. And I think I think the weapons are going to turn out are going to confound the Japanese. I think we're going to see drone technology and other things that will be fabulous. It's interesting. It's actually, it was some years ago that Japan finally repealed its law that said you can't export weapons uh, if you're a Japanese company. And that was left over from the pacifism, the post-World War II uh, viewpoint that it's just, uh, you know, is bad. It was probably banned by by us, actually, but continued uh, when they got their sovereignty back. It's been very slow. The companies there have been very slow. You'd think the next day that uh, Mitsubishi would be like, oh, yeah, well, hey, let's try and sell you know, uh, jet engines to Taiwan for its F-16s. Nope, it didn't happen. It, maybe it will now. Well, I think the thing is that's, I mean, what, I mean, what do you, what, what do you think the reception will be, you know, from, a, I mean, the Japanese are going to certainly be more aggressive in selling their products in Asia than the Europeans. I mean, because they don't give a shit about upsetting the Japanese, the Chinese. Yeah, exactly. That would be pretty, you know, big because so far Taiwan has had to buy everything from us. I mean, they bought yeah. some French, French fighters in what, the 80s, the 90s, or maybe the 70s. Um, but more recently, since China has been economically significant, the only country that's been willing to sell them just about anything is the US. That would be interesting if if Japan flipped around to that. I got to say, there are um, the Taiwanese diplomats, you know, this sort of allude to decent connections with Japan, and you have good statements. And I believe the policy director of the LDP, I'm not sure if he's actually in the diet or just um, uh, an out, you know, a, uh, <laughs> a staffer, essentially, but he's going to go and uh, go to Taiwan. Um, so you have some increase in linkages, but I, the linkages I know between uh, MOFA in Japan and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Taiwan, very, very, very limited. So a lot of a lot of room to grow if they want to grow. My big question, though, is how Japan funds the big increase in defense spending, because their obligations from an aging population are not decreasing. They seem to still want to spend an enormous amount on infrastructure, which, you know, hey, it makes it a, a great, well put together. Tokyo is probably the most well put together city. Um, you know, I can think of if you look at others like Dubai, where there's lots of money, they have this growing pains, whereas Tokyo is more mature. But, you know, you have a country with more than 200 percent of uh, debt to GDP, far surpassing us. Uh, and of course, we've surpassed the French uh, and others. And, and uh, it, it keeps going with this odd sort of uh, phenomenon. I gather Japan Post is where a lot of Japanese keep their savings, which can sort of and, this, and everyone is in on the joke as far as when you can raise prices, who you can lend to all of that. So some of the regular market conditions don't apply in Japan, but it, it's, I'm, I'd be surprised if they could easily come up with this money. I don't think they can. That's a question probably you're better at answering, and I know you pay attention to it. I mean, my thing is, is like, all right, how much are they really going to spend much more? Are they going to spend another $5 billion or another $25 billion? I, I say if they're spending $20 billion, $25 billion, what does that get them? That gets them a whole new flight of drones. That gets them six or seven, four or five new ships every year. You know what I'm saying? That gives them mines. That gives them countermeasures. It gives them missiles. Mm -hmm. I, I think as long as they keep it reasonable. But I do think going back to your question, what they'll be able to do is, look, what's it, it's all about is jobs and things like that. So what will they be able to do? They'll be able to move. They'll be able to move these things around. In other words, like where they're putting money in the infrastructure here and this and that. I think as long as they're spending the money someplace else, we'll happen to see it. I'm not saying guys who are pouring concrete are going to go start making Exocet missiles. But I do <laughs> think 
but I do think the fact of the matter is, is that they will find a way to split it around. They will find a way to move it around. But I really have uh, my, my, my biggest issue is I wonder how they're going to man all these things. I think the Japanese are on the cusp of the next thing of an immigration change. I think we're going to see them bring it. They're, they're already, they already cheat a little bit, unlike Taiwan. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they already like, you know, you see, you know, if you're up in Hokkaido, it's like, I, I remember I went to Hokkaido like seven years ago. And I went to the, these, these, visit these three farms. Everybody I met was Filipino. You'd meet like the two top guys would be Japanese and then you'd meet Filipino guys. You know what I'm saying? They're all running it up there. So, and and when you talk to them, they haven't been there four years. I mean, they've been there like 25 years, 28 years. They speak fluent Japanese. You know, they start to move into the culture. They get married. They bring their wives up. Um, I think Japan, and they're, and they're not counted in the census. That's the funniest thing about it because they're considered migrant workers for 25 years. Yeah. No, and then they have it. this magic thing where they can actually stay after, after like if they have like 35 years or something, they get, I don't know what it is. They get grandfathered in, they were telling me. So, hmm. and they get all the be- benefits and healthcare and stuff. And they'll all work till they're 75 or 80. And they speak fluent Japanese and they watch Japanese TV and they, you know, watch Japanese movies. They get together on the weekends and talk, you know, Tagalog. But no, yeah, I because think Japan, the Korean population, same thing. They and they used to be divided between the ones who were pro South and pro North. There was this big organization, I think Chosen Soren, mm-hmm. ran pachinko parlors, organized yep. crime, and sent the money to North Korea. Finally, it got shut down, I think, in the 2000s. But yeah, you sort of look and it's like, oh, and it's this group, they're not quite fully Japanese, even though they're clearly not going anywhere. I think, I think countries, I think countries are, 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 are going that that's a, that's, I think we could do a whole show on demographics because I think that's why the U S is winning. That's why Europe's winning right now. Going to win in the long term. It's growing pains initially, but overall it's, it's a better problem to have with people coming in than with not enough people as we we see with Taiwan for another subject matter, you know, Mm -hmm. You One know. of my uh, favorite analogies with Japan, you know, this is someone who travels to Asia a lot, jet lag, has you up early in the morning when you arrive, was jogging at maybe four or five, it was pitch dark, over back where the fish market used to be, but south of there, not crowded at all. And they were fixing a sidewalk that looked perfectly fine to me. Maybe it had a little crack in it. So you had three or four guys out fixing the sidewalk. You had a diversion of traffic, foot traffic, not cars, but they had a set of cones. So if you were happened to be on foot at 4 a.m. in this random place, uh, that was not a well-traveled part of Tokyo. You would go, and despite all yeah. of these provisions, and a guy waving a wand at 4 a.m. and no one around, someone comes with a bike, 10 speed, and goes right through the what's. <laughs> They're like, ah, that's Japan, sort of in this neat little thing where you have the spending on the infrastructure, the over sort of organization and control, and someone's still to mess it up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's I love it's, I, I love I actually we I miss Japan. I love Japan. I. I haven't been to Japan in three years now because of COVID. So I'm finally going yeah, back neither. this summer. Do you ever, well, before we leave Japan for the next topic, what he lost in translation with Bill Murray? It's got to be at least 10 years old, maybe 15 or so. Did you like it or uh, or not? I love Lost in Translation. I thought it was a great movie. The one thing good. I liked about it, and I know this sounds odd, is Japanese hotels are actually nice. They're clean and everything like that. But they've got that certain thing about them that, that sanitation like feeling about them, you know what I'm saying? Like every, like if you open a cracker, the cracker is in like this incredibly complex, you know, packaging, you know, and it's not that good, but it's okay. 
And, you know, everything you get is like, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's just so good. I thought Bill Murray captured it really, really well. And, and we're all, the other thing too about Japan is I always say this and people get mad at me. I like the fact that you're not going to ever really be Japanese. In other words, you get guys who live there for 25, 35 years. They've got all their friends. Everybody loves them. And they're, they're usually in the intellectual community. But, you know, I know guys who've lived out in the countryside. Yeah, I lived here for 25, 30 years. You know, they worked up around Yokohama and come back in. And then they retire to Tennessee. And I'm like, why are you retiring to Tennessee? And they said, because once you stop working, they said, there's really not much to do. They said, you know, you're not part of their social group. You know, it's not like you're invited everywhere. With work, you're going to have friends and stuff like that. And he, they said, I just don't feel like there's there's really no retired American community there. I, I just know a guy who did that. I used to work with him for the military Sealift Command. And uh, he's a great guy. And he just told me, he said, I went back to Tennessee. And I'm like, you know, what about your wife and your kids? He goes, I, as I live in Tennessee. He said, I go back to Japan three times a year and my wife comes here. He said, you know, we said we basically were together eight months a year. We've been married 40 years, said we're fine. You know, the kids, he said the kids are in Japan and the U.S. But the thing is, is like it's a very strange, strange place in for, for foreigners. But I love it so much. It yeah. works. It does work. I mean, the banking, nothing, nothing that you need to work works, but everything that you don't need to work works. <laughs> Food's right. great. Restaurants are fine. People are nice. Taxis happen. Everything. It's safe and all that stuff. I mean, an ATM machine is like, you know, it's like cracking Fort Knox, you know what I'm saying? But, I mean, <laughs> but it's better. It's much better. It's like, yes, you can renew your immigration stamp at a 7-Eleven and uh, maybe refinance That's your mortgage right. there. <laughs> it's an amazing place. And buy all the underwear you ever need at a 7-Eleven. <laughs> right. Uh, finally, um, with uh, Taiwan, uh, a win for the U.S. might be a loss for Taiwan. TSMC, largely considered the most sophisticated um, semiconductor company in the world, uh, saying that it's going to invest in Arizona. And this was first announced during the Trump administration and sort of, you know, fashioned as, uh, oh, this is reshoring and this is we're deepening our relationship with the U.S., et cetera. It now seems that they're going to uh, increase so much that it's it's for economic reasons. It's for strategic reasons. People are worried about all the, sophist the top sophisticated stuff being exclusively in Taiwan. Um, and it's not just sort of the second tier that's coming to Arizona, but the first tier, theoretically. Uh, what do you uh, is that the right way to look at it? And what do you attribute that to? Well, I take a much more dim view for Taiwan. I think this is a very bad sign for Taiwan. I think, first of all, someone who's a true Taiwanese patriot probably had to give his, I wouldn't say he had to sign off on it, but he put it, he could have blocked it if he wanted to or caused more trouble. Morris Chang. Uh, Morris Chang talked about the end of globalization at his speech at the TMSC. Nobody listened to it. I think actually more people did than he thought, but it was a very good speech and it was very talking about how globalization is over and you know he's really looking at a bipolar world now so the survival of his company is do you put all your eggs in a basket in taiwan or do you spread them out and where are you going to spread them out to and why go to vietnam when the chinese can hit vietnam just as easily that they can hit their hit other places so what are you doing you're moving to a place where essentially once you get your word and the rule of law and once they tell you what they're going to do in fairness to certain states in the U.S., you they can do business. I mean, you know, you got the woke crap and you got the labor unions and you got the environmental stuff, but you pretty much have that version of that everywhere. But the U.S. has something that's going on. It has a growing population. It allows in workers, specialty workers and things like that. 
and it's basically got all the water they need. It's not an energy. There's no energy problems. In other words, if they need energy, they'll get it. In other words, they get everything in the U.S. and Arizona. They do not get in Taiwan. And they have, of course, you have the security factor as well. I think this is a real blow to Taiwan. I think what they're saying to Taiwan is like, yeah, we're going to keep some things here. We're going to keep expanding. We're going to, and they will a little bit. You know, they'll keep doing some things. But the fact of the matter is, they're moving out of Taiwan. In other words, Taiwan, we're moving all our more, a lot of our more serious chip work that we do for defense and things like that. It's moving to the U.S. The problem for Taiwan is five years from now, when these factories are up and running. And let's say you go to the second expansion. At that point in time, the justification to protect Taiwan because of chips starts really going away very quickly. Uh-huh. Okay. And it starts falling very, very quickly. But the other thing, too, it's just the general business hostility that the Thai administration that, and the Taiwan has. Taiwan is a very, very hostile place for business. It always has been. I do a lot of business there, probably more than most people. Certainly, you know, I do real estate there. I've done animation. I've done media. Uh, we've done investments. It is the most regulated place I've ever been in Asia. I mean, you, it's, it's India, basically. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a place where the banking laws are strictly designed. To, they, they have unique problems, I know. But the fact of the matter is, at the end of the day, those are your problems and not my problems. I'm just trying to run a business. They're immigration. They're hostile, very hostile to new people coming in. They basically, the Hong Kong kids were all going to show up. Everybody was going to come to Taiwan. Can't have you. No Hong Kong people. Okay. All the J-1 visas, the B-1 visas, everything like that, nightmare. Okay. For everybody, whatever their versions of those. So I think it's a very hostile place. Add on top of that, you've got an energy crisis and you've got water problems. Right. This is a country that is essentially taking itself out of a major industry. They'll, of course, they're always going to have it there that people would say you're too dire. But my point is, 10 years from now, if the Chinese wait, there'll be a lot easier place to, to, to people to give up. It's just not, not going to be that valuable. And they, the demographics are just awful. They're just off the chart awful. Well, that's pretty concerning, <laughs> considering. No, I, we I want think, them I think to, people, but yeah, I think what you say is right. One of the things that drives me nuts is it's it's like there's this entire. I actually put stuff out that's pretty hostile on Twitter, and I'm starting to hear from some of the lefties who start to agree with me. It's like, what are you doing? Pre- Pre- president Tai is not a good economic president. I mean, when the account when during COVID, people go, well, look at Taiwan; it's growing at six point was percent. Yeah, because everything became about import substitution at that time. And Taiwan was unique in the sense that it had a lot of exports going out in this high-end stuff and these chips. Did they do anything to reward the chip companies? Did they do anything special? No, absolutely not. You know, right? And, and they it, stayed closed for almost three years, and that you know, they did. Off they a, took advantage of nothing. Real problematic. Right. Right. Well, so hopefully they turn it around. They are dependent on uh, not only uh, engagement with the world, but the rest of the world caring about them. Um, I'm not sure if yeah. the world will care about them if they don't have things that we care that they need. Right. People have and, a very strange, you know, it's kind of like friends in life. You know, when you have your friends in life, when a friend takes care of themselves and tries really hard, is always grateful. And always, that's the friend you want to take care of. The friend who's always like, please, can you help me? There's nothing I can do. You'll help that friend. But after a while, you look at him and say, look, you got to get on your own two feet. 
And the fact is the Taiwanese are in, they're in that latter mode. They are basically in the, you know, we need some help. We can't do this. We can't do that, you know, and, 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 and that's fine, but that's not going to work for them. Hopefully the setback to the ruling party of the DPP in the last elections, which we discussed on a previous episode is a wake up call um, that the DPP can't just sort of say, okay, the KMT is the business party, but we'll focus on Taiwanese identity and opposing China, which is fine and good. But um, yeah, they just need to streamline some of the business stuff. If regulation isn't absolutely necessary, then get rid of it. I hope hope you're right. But the first thing they could do right away to make everything easier tomorrow is they could change immigration laws. But this is still a place that does not do that. And when you bring it up to them, they're always like, "Mm, it's very difficult. The people don't like it. Fine. (laughs) Right. Your problem, not ours. And I think I think they are counting on the fact that the Japanese and the Americans will defend them, which I think it's in our interest very much to do so. But I think what we need to start doing with, with Taiwan is we need to start putting the foot up the ass instead of always showing up and saying how wonderful they are. You know, it is part of that means changing our own approach, because while we have the Taiwan Relations Act, we've had a series of administrations that have dragged their feet on Taiwanese requests for arms yeah. or I mean, look, make them get permission before they even make the request. So, you know, the state department, look, say, oh, we've we, approved we, every we, request. We, it's I, like, well, yeah, but behind not, the scenes, you've told them not to. I agree with you, Christian. I'm not saying it's all their fault. I'm just saying they have to get their act together. Yeah. And the other thing they need to do is they do need to be more forceful. Like for example, instead of us sending all those weapons that they pay for to Ukraine, I just have this image of like, they, we, they hand us a check for the weapon and they said, oh, we say, oh, we're going to go out in the back and they go, oh, you know, my brother, Al, he took that missile system to Ukraine with him. So come back next week and we'll give you the Ukrainians. We'll give you a system. They come back next week. Oh, my buddy, Tommy, he took that <laughs> missile system to Ukraine. Come back next week. The whole time we're, they're, we're holding their money. I mean, it's ridiculous. Taiwan is by far more important than Ukraine. I'm not, you know me, I'm not saying we throw Ukraine under the bus. But the fact of the matter is, is that we've got priorities for our nation. Taiwan is a much higher priority for the United States than Ukraine. I'm sorry. That's just how I see it. We, yeah, we no, are, I agree with you entirely. We are a Pacific-facing nation. If you want to make sure that you have access to the Philippines, Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, um, even South Korea, and, and you know, friendly Japan, that is where we're trading with. That's what we're doing business with. Matters far more than Efistan or whatever the hell it is, you know, some stand sitting right. over. Next year, yeah, you know, it doesn't matter to me. Those, those <laughs> things don't matter to me that much, as much. And I think the fact of the matter is, in fairness to the Ukrainians, they fought that they fought the Russians to a standstill. The Russians are not coming in anymore. Let's stop with this ridiculous. But you're not going to take back that territory from the Russians. It's forty million or thirty-five million against one hundred and ten million. It just doesn't work. And the Russians quick- are not bad fighters. That that's a myth too, right? One quick final thing. You just mentioned Indonesia in passing. Um, are you concerned at all as a guy who runs hotels? Uh, Indonesia has passed a law saying that relations between two people who are not married are illegal. Um, so any uh, gay relationship or any relationship between two unmarried people, which technically could include American tourists visiting in Bali or in Jakarta, uh, puts you outside of the law in Indonesia. Do you, is this just a gesture? It seems like the latest in a string of concerning gestures. Well, first so. of all, I, I followed it closely. I do mm-hmm. not believe the Indonesians said we're not going to prosecute foreigners. No, once it's on the book, 
books, you're gonna you have a version of religious police. They don't like the homosexual lifestyle. They do not like couples shacking up together. I've been in Indonesia many a time where you just watch the Indonesians. They're looking at it in Bali and they're seeing, you know, Australians walking around with, you know, strings up their ass and that's all they've got. And they're not happy about it. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And I think you're going to, and that's Bali where they're basically Hindu and they're not Mm -hmm. even happy about it. In other places, I saw it down in Myanmar with some of the Muslims down there in Southern Thailand. Look, I think the fact of the matter is, is that um, people are going to have to start understanding that what we want it to be and what it is are two different things. And I think the thing is, we have to set our trade agreements on that. And I think the fact of the matter is, I I have a real theory that we should have our values. These are the values we're coming to your country with. These are the values we're going to invest in your country. If you want a tier one relationship with us, we're not asking you to adopt our values. But when we're there, those are the values we're playing by. If you've got a problem with it, that's it. The worst thing we have is the Tim Cook. Well, in certain countries, we abide by their laws. That's your country manager making your policy. That's not your policy. That's a country manager who's going to adjust every single time to make his life easier. Right. So you, you end up in Asia, you end up with 17 different policies based on who your manager is. People say, well, you've got to have the guy on the ground telling you what it's like. Not when it comes to what I'm doing. Does the guy on the ground send back a thing and say, well, you know, I think we should have all pink iPhones. No. <laughs> he sells what he sells what the market's going to bear, but also what you're developing, you know. And I think I think I think it's a real. To be perfectly honest with you, I am can assure you right now there will be gay couples, there will be other couples who will be picked up and harassed, no doubt in my mind. You know, you can say in Jakarta that we don't want to see this happening in Surabaya. You know, leave these people alone. But they're their own law down there. You know what I'm saying? And once it happens, it becomes it becomes an issue. I can already tell you some of my gay friends in Asia, they're very selective about where they where they vacation. You know, even certain places in the Philippines, you got to be careful, largely because, you know, there 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 is a there is flashback. But, you know, Thailand, everybody likes. Um, I've never heard of problems in Thailand. Um Vietnam, not a problem or something like that. But there are places, let's face it, where the Muslim nations can get very nasty very, very quickly um, right. uh, for gay couples and also for single women. You know, I mean, in other words, I was single, single women traveling around is not exactly the greatest thing in the world, you know, for that. It's look, these people have their norms. They have their values. My point is, is like I treat it like this. That's fine. That's what you do. But. When we show up with our investments, when we show up with what we're going to do, this, this is how it's going to happen. You know, we're not going to dictate right. to you what's going to happen, but our people live by these rules. If you're not happy with that, let us know up front so we can make our people not show up. But I, I think right. I think I think there's no doubt in my mind they're going to be picking up cup, gay right, couples right. and single straight yeah. couples. So, yeah, which is, yeah, it's it's at, it's at an interesting trajectory. Least, money at the very least for the corruption money. Yeah. Oh, right. Just because you know, very, at the very least, and... you see two wealthy gay men together and they're together and you, they, they're staying at a five diamond hotel. That's got to be worth a couple of grand to keep them out of jail. A couple of, you know, that's how it works now. People forget that's how this stuff works a lot of times in these developing nations. Interesting. The hotel pays or the couple pays? Couple pays. Okay. To, hotel to probably has to kick something too. Yeah. 
Yeah. Just depends. All right. So no spring break for your college age daughters in Mindanao or Southern Thailand or. Uh... Yeah, I, I would, I would, I would encourage, I would, I would encourage, Java, both, Java. Both, I would encourage even like the Army Ranger Battalion probably not go to Mindanao, not the best place in the world, <laughs> unless they're well, no. unless they're on a mission, unless they're going to do something. You know what I'm saying? But if you're looking for, <laughs> for a little R and R, not the place to go on that. You know, and, I guess in many parts, in many parts of Indonesia, by the way. Indonesia's got some very conservative subsectors in it. You know what I'm saying? That, you know, really can get nasty very quickly. Interesting. You know? I think it was MacArthur's plan to invade Mindanao first, and then it shifted to Leyte. And yeah. there was sort of this breakdown in communications between the army and MacArthur and the Navy. Of course, the Navy having a well, better... The Japanese PR never department. fully took Mindanao. The Japanese never fully took Mindanao. Ah, but originally the Marines had to take Peleliu because they thought that was covering the flank for an attack on Mindanao, which then became pointless. Yeah, that's um, right. But anyway, right. the Navy blames MacArthur and vice versa. And the Navy has always had a better propaganda operation, although I kind of- Far better, far better. They know what they're doing, each one. All right, well, look, I'll talk to you soon, but if I don't see you before that, have a Merry Christmas, all right? Merry Christmas to you and to all of our viewers. And we'll be back again soon with another edition of Simon & White. Thanks. <laughs>